Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. As you may be aware, Halloween is on the horizon. We here at the No Sleep Podcast have a colossal cavalcade of content coming for your ears over the next week. But on top of our Halloween episodes, we're also going to be continuing our newly established tradition of Halloween live streams. Our Halloween live stream event will take place on Saturday, October 30th on twitch.tv slash the no sleep podcast. Fear laden festivities will kick off at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, where we'll spend a terrifying time hanging out, chatting with listeners and sharing spooky stories. Then, to take us up to the twilight hours, members of the No Sleep Podcast team will compete against each other in a number of multiplayer games, including the newly released Jackbox Party Pack 8. Come 6pm Eastern Daylight Time, some of us will dissolve into the night, heading out under the cover of darkness to attend Halloween soirees. But fear not. Some of the more game-obsessed members of the team will be hanging around long into the night, hosting further games that invite an unholy union between the No Sleep Podcast players and our sleepless fans. Expect such devilish delights as Back for Blood, more Jackbox, Dead by Daylight, and Nickelodeon All-Star Brawl. So that's Saturday, October 30th, from 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time on twitch.tv slash the no sleep podcast and further gaming hijinks extending throughout the rest of the night until the treats have run out and the night draws to a creepy close. And now on to volume six of Sleepless Decompositions. I was warned once, you know, of two moons. Where there are twin suns, there can be a lunar answer. And then again, my attention was drawn to portentous reasonings. The moons rise over the 17th cycle, which begins with the season of the witch. Two moons, satellites in the night sky. Our ancestors feared the darkness. It was a survival instinct. And it would be easy to assume that their terror kicked in at sunfall. That's certainly what author S.H. Cooper would have had us believe. Or is it? Perhaps what she was really trying to tell us, via the voice of Dan Zapula, is that the thing we should fear the most is Moonrise. It was the smell or the sound. I don't remember which now. One of them was enough to draw me to the beach. The other, enough to keep me there. There's a funk that sometimes accompanies low tide. Brine and seaweed, the shallow mire exposed to air. Usually, I hardly noticed it. That night, though, it rolled through my ocean-facing window left open to catch the fall breeze, and coated my home with its stench. Even after I'd shuddered up, the stink remained, strong enough that I wondered if something dead hadn't washed ashore. I like to think I would have ignored it. I wasn't curious by nature, especially not if death was involved, and was just content to wait it out. I just had to hope it wasn't something that would stick around decaying for a while. Living on a desolate stretch of sound had its perks. Attentive deceased animal cleanup was not one of them. At some point, despite my better judgment, I'd stepped onto my porch. Perhaps I was trying to see down the long slope leading to the beach. Or maybe the house had just felt too small and altogether too big at the same time. It had been doing that more lately since the passing of my old tomcat had left me alone. Either way, I ended up outside, and moments later, I was down at the beach. Was it the smell I'd gone toward? So strong I'd finally decided to confirm there wasn't an unfortunate whale left behind when the tide went out? Or was it the hum 
So low and deep, I couldn't be sure if I was actually hearing it or merely feeling it traveling through the ground. My flashlight led me along the stony shoreline. Though the full moon was bright enough, I could practically see by it. It wasn't until I turned back and saw the pinprick glow in my windows that I realized how far I'd actually walked. Not just down the beach, but away from it. The tide wasn't just low. It was gone. That far out, I should have been up to my knees at least. Confused, one hand pressed over my nose. I swept my flashlight up and down, eyes narrowed against the night. If I was still and I listened for it, I could hear the gentle lap of water meeting land. But it was distant, coming from somewhere further ahead still. The hum, however had grown louder, or more accurately, more intense. It spread up my feet into my legs, sending shivers through my chest, as if a tuning fork was being struck by each beat of my heart. Between it and the smell, my head pounded. I should have gone back. I wanted to go back. But when I looked over my shoulder again, the lights from my home had all but vanished, swallowed up by the night. As if pulled by source unseen, I was still moving forward even as I willed myself to turn around. My thoughts became a distant thing from my body, urging one thing while my legs did another. The hum was in my teeth then, vibrating them in their sockets. My eyes watered at the stench. So heavy it clogged my nose and filled my mouth with the taste of rotting fish and stagnant seawater. When I saw the pillar, thin and taller than me by twofold, topped by a bulbous round end rising against the sky ahead, every instinct told me that this was the source of that damned hum. My heartbeat had become erratic a small animal aware it's not alone in the hunter's wood. And with what little control I could muster, I pointed my flashlight at the strange obelisk. The light detailed its surface, splotchy brown with a wet sheen. Not wood or stone, not quite flesh, but living. And I was reaching for it. I hadn't registered I was at all until my fingertips brushed against it. Rougher than it first appeared. Scaly, covered in a fine layer of slimy, sticky substance. At some base level, I knew I shouldn't be touching it, even as I pressed my palm flatly against it. A cough rose in my throat. I tried to force it back down, tried to take a gulp of air that had turned liquid thick but it quickly became a sputter. My chest constricted sharply. I attempted to pull away from the pillar, gasping desperately for breath, but my hand remained fixed to it. I yanked again, but it was stuck fast, and when I shined my light on it, I saw the slime had gathered around my hand and oozed between my fingers, holding me in place like a fly in honey. My lungs screamed, and in a last-ditch effort to fill them, I threw my head back, mouth stretched wide. The moon, hanging low and glowing impossibly bright, seemed to grow as I stared up at it, until it filled my vision and my eyes burned with its white light. I squeezed them shut, wrenching my head away from its unblinking glare. Just as quickly, it was gone, and the world beyond my eyelids darkened into black. I had become weightless, floating in such all-consuming cold. I only felt it for a moment before my body became numb. I wasn't sure if I was breathing or if I needed to breathe or if anything hurt anymore. Only dark 
and then cold, and then nothing at all. I only opened my eyes when the sound started, a melancholic call that reminded me of whale songs, but was at the same time too deep and discordant to be anything recognizable. There was no light, moon or otherwise, in that void, but my mind had become too sluggish for thought or panic. A current passed to my left. I tried to turn toward it, distantly aware I should be more afraid, but it was hard when I couldn't see or think. I merely existed. The first flash was a distant blink of pale blue against the black. That time I did somehow twist my body toward it. It came again, closer, and I became aware of the large outline behind it. Another blink, and then a consistent glow. The dim pool was cast by an array of fleshy appendages dangling in front of long, narrow teeth. The creature they belonged to was only a vague shape looming in shadow. Thin tendrils of fear finally broke through the numbness and began to snake their way through my frozen veins. As I became more aware, more afraid, the distorted whale-like song rose into a keen, and each note was like a knife scraping across my brain, carving a message I couldn't grasp into my very being. It smoldered and sparked, burning through the cold until it felt like lightning was tearing through my body. What did it want? If I could just figure it out, just appease it, perhaps it would stop. But the more I struggled to decipher it, the more I could feel myself fighting against that understanding. This was not something for man to hear, much less comprehend. It was primordial, dredged from some hellish depths I had never been meant to descend to. I could feel it in my bones, how the wrongness of it raked against them and tried to seep into my marrow. Pressure built and built until my brain seemed crushed against the sides of my skull and I was sure it would burst, erupting through bone and scalp as the whale song crescendoed. There came a rush of water as if I were quickly rising or it were quickly receding, and with it went the dark. And I was suddenly staring up at the night sky once more. The world was warped, though, rounded at its edges, the colors muted, the shapes indistinct, all except the moon. Not the same white orb I'd been gazing at before, although it, too, was still there. No, this was different. A second moon. Some impossible shade of purple-red I'd never seen before, cresting the horizon. At the sight of it, a new fear started to rise in me. Nameless and animalistic, it clawed at my insides with a fatalistic certainty, like nothing I'd ever felt before. If that thing eclipses our moon, we're doomed. As the thought formed and grew, a connection to my humanity that I clamored to hold to, my vision blurred and dimmed. I was seeing double, looking both up at the two moons and at the pillar where my hand remained stuck. The images swam together in a confusing blend that made my head throb. I was slipping between myself and this second vision, fixed upward, and knew if I didn't separate myself from the pillar, I would become lost to it. I dropped my flashlight and pulled my arm, weakly at first, but my desperation soon turned it into a wild tug of war. One foot braced against the pillar as I grasped my wrist and attempted to yank it free. The slime clung unyielding. Tiny fissures appeared in my skin, and a pain like a hundred razor blade cuts ran up my arm. 
Seams of red bubbled to the surface as I shook and pulled and fought to reclaim my limb. Blood ran down my wrist, slickened the hold of my free hand, and in a last-ditch attempt at freedom, I planted both feet upon the pillar and shoved myself backwards with all my might. My hand came away with a wet tear almost drowned out by my scream. The flesh of my palm and fingers remained on the pillar, and I couldn't bring myself to look down at the mess of exposed sinew and muscle cradled against my chest. Immediately, my vision cleared and became my own again, and the second moon had vanished. As I stumbled back, I nearly lost my footing and my gaze went downward. Caught in the flashlight's beam was not seabed, but the scaly side of a giant flounder-like fish, partially obscured by sand and rock. In growing horror, I traced the length of its body back to the pillar and realized it wasn't a pillar at all. It was an eye stalk, and I had been seeing the world through its single bulbous eye. I uttered a small, terrified cry and staggered off of that creature, away from its unshifting upward stare and the horrible images it had somehow imparted, unsure of what it was, what it wanted, where it came from, only that it was real, that that moon, too alien for my eyes to even fathom, was rising, and that... If it eclipses our moon, we are doomed. in the sky flare across a huge eye that's amore now i trust you are all aware of the excellent horror anthology podcast called creepy created and hosted by friend of the show john grills and with halloween upon us it's the perfect time for creepy and no sleep to collaborate that collaboration can be heard here in mere moments well part of it anyway Written and performed by John Grills, this story also stars Nate Dufort from Creepy, alongside our own Mick Wingert, David Alt, Dan Zapula, and Jeff Clement. The second of our collaborations can be heard over on the Creepy Podcast. Check the link in the show notes to find it. So listen to the second half on Creepy. But now, let's listen to our collaboration with Creepy, with a creepy tale called... I used to work for an extreme haunt. Growing up, I was always a sucker for anything horror. I saw my first horror movie when I was eight. The Exorcist. Yeah, I know. Mom and Dad were pretty pissed at my aunt and uncle for that one. But what's done can't be undone. And what they'd done was plant a seed that grew into a goddamn oak tree by the time I hit middle school. Wouldn't be much of a stretch to say I was the only kid in elementary school who'd heard of and actually seen parts of faces of death, courtesy of a friend's older brother. By the time I'd gotten out of middle school, I'd seen Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Ferrix. High school brought on the Human Centipede, Antichrist, and even the Siberian film. If it was intense, I wanted to see it. Not like it mattered. They were just movies. Never made sense to me how people could get so worked up over that stuff. Guess that's how I got started with haunted houses in the first place. If you can believe it, school is responsible for that one. My ninth grade civics class required that we do community service. 
And one of the options that a lot of kids took was to volunteer at a local haunted house. It wasn't anything special. Whoever put it on had rented out an old department store space in a local dirt mall. They hung trash bags to create walls and mazes and stuff like that. And I heard volunteers from the local high school to run it. <laughs> I can't imagine they felt good about that choice by the end of it. Most of us just goofed off and wandered around the place ourselves. Checking out the other rooms, switching roles, all the stuff they didn't want us to do. Honestly, it got a little boring hiding in the shadows, waiting to jump out at some rube wandering around a maze that could have knocked down with a good sneeze. Still, come 10th grade, I started looking at other options. Over the years, I've worked at haunted houses, haunted hayrides, zombie crawls, Halloween fun runs, even a horror-themed bar for a while that kept a candle glowing in front of a picture of Laura Palmer. Eventually, I found my way into the extreme haunt scene. I don't know if it was my personality or just the natural progression of things. I mean, the people who attend this stuff are the same way, right? They saw scary movies when they were young, started going to haunted houses, eventually got tired of the same old things and wanted to push boundaries. They started to find the places that required consent forms. Well, those places need employees, right? It's supply and demand. If you know anything about extreme haunts, you probably heard the stories already. Places that require a safe word. Places where the actors can touch you and more. Places that boast no one can make it to the end. I worked for one of those. I know there are places out there with certain reputations. Places I won't talk about here. Because fuck those guys anyway. Places with waiting lists a mile long just for people to go in and get verbally abused. But the owner of ours, Michael, he took it one step further. Guy wasn't more than 40, but had a smoker's cough like a coal miner or something. You make it to the end, you get $10,000. But you'll regret it. That's the line everyone knows him for. A sort of promo video popped up on YouTube a couple years ago, around the time I started working there. It was mostly just images of people who'd given up. Because that's part of the agreement. You gave up, you gave us permission to photograph you and film you, basically call you a piece of shit on camera for the world to see. People with sense would have seen that video and turned the other way. But no, lots of sick fucks out there. Our online registration doubled within a week. Everybody thought they could handle it. They were wrong. Until one guy, a few weeks ago. We were on the show most of the year, kind of on a sporadic schedule as Michael saw fit. Honestly, not having a set schedule just sort of fed into the sadism and masochism that people wanted. You get to come when we tell you. That's what were. It added to the mystique and really just reflected the attitude of the place. I can't say I cared much for the people who showed up. I can't say it necessarily started that way. But hanging around that group of guys for long enough, it changes a person. You start to reflect leadership and environment. Extreme hall workers aren't born. They're made. We had a rotating group of about a dozen guys. The guys who torment you, wrap your head in duct tape, lock you in a refrigerator, chain you to a pipe, that sort of stuff. They were referred to as our dogs. But there was a core group of five of us who worked the haunt regularly with specific gigs. I was a driver. I'm the guy who picked people up at the designated point, blindfolded them, drove them around off-road for a while till they were good and lost. And most of the time worried. I was the one who got them out, walked them into the haunt we had set up and started the process handing them off to one of the dogs. Then I go and man the cameras. We filmed everything, for reasons. First, there was Blur. No one ever saw him. If they did, they'd be way less scared of him. Blur was a skinny surfer-looking guy. Never once saw him wearing a shirt. Had bleach blonde hair and a perpetual tan like he just left the beach to fuck with people. I always rocked back and forth when he was standing still like he was ready to run off at any moment. Rumor was the guy was a tweaker, but if so, he's the most reliable tweaker I ever met. Blur was all about the audio experience, ASMR stuff. Assuming he made it that far, and lots didn't. Most gave up with the basic shit the dogs would do. They'd chain you to a pipe so your feet were just at their tiptoes on the ground. 
and he'd whisper into your right ear. Hey. Then whisper in your left. It's okay. He'd move all around. It's just a game. You'll be fine. There's no reason to... Then he'd scream the most insane shit you ever heard. I'm gonna fuck your corpse in front of your mother, you dumb fuck! (laughs) This isn't a fucking game! You're stuck here now! You think that safe word shit is real? How fucking stupid are you? Why would you think this was legit? No one knows where you are. He laughed a sick, choking laugh right in their face. Then just go quiet. He'd take an hour just fucking with them. Moving around, taunting them. He was equal parts drill sergeant and insane clown. I swear most people quit there. They just don't expect it all. The shock's too much. You revert to a little kid getting screamed at. People hollering their safe word within the first five minutes was pretty common. Pathetic, too, if you ask me. Eventually, he'd get tired of his own shtick and let the dogs take him back for a while. We'd always work in some abandoned factory or something. Some place filled with dirt and mud and bugs. They'd throw them down, smear their faces, whatever they wanted. After that was Paul. It was the first time the people would take off their blindfolds. Or, if they were unlucky have the duct tape ripped from their faces. And the first thing they got to see what can be best described is Iggy Pop on a bad day. Paul was just about the skinniest looking hillbilly you ever saw. His rib cage was on full display, along with the rest of him. Naked as a day he was shit into this world. The guy always looked bruised and sleep deprived. If he wasn't doing this, he'd probably be a performance artist in New York rubbing shit on himself and calling it a political statement. The dogs would tie you up, sometimes hog-tied. And Paul would worm across the floor, slithering around their bodies, rubbing up against their skin. He'd make this clicking noise as he'd whisper to them. Can you feel me? <laughs> he'd lick them anywhere they had exposed skin. Pro tip, don't wear a tank top there. Guy smelled like he ate shit with a constant stink of chewing tobacco and stale coffee. He'd hiss at him like a fucking snake. <laughs> they can smell you. You'll feel me for the rest of your life. When you quit, when you cry out to escape and go home, when you take a shower to try and wash my stench from your flesh and lay down on your bed, you'll feel me there next to you (laughs) forever. And one day you'll open your eyes and see me. Because I know you want me. (laughs) You gave us your address. (laughs) We know you know. And you'll know me. (laughs) He'd pry at them. Force his fingers into their mouths, down their throats. Not enough for them to throw up. More to prime them for gags. Guess what he did? If there was a smell that could make a person throw up, Gags knew about it. He was our demented chemist with the iron stomach. He could make damn near anyone throw up. Then he'd grab in his bare hands and feed it back to you. He only had one rule. You aren't allowed to throw up. You leave here with what you came in with. You stayed in Gags' room for at least two hours. At least. And before long, you could hear him yelling. Eat it. Fucking eat it, you fucking pig. Don't you dare spill that shit on my floor. Fucking eat it all. If you couldn't throw up, like your stomach was already empty or something, Pete would join Gags in the room. Pete wore one of those old World War I-style gas masks. You could hear the forced breathing coming down the hall. He'd have a double-stacked metal bucket in one hand, the top one filled with water, 
clanging and sloshing against the walls as he walked, and a towel in the other. Yeah, Pete waterboarded people. You basically drown you as gags held you down, all the while chanting through that mask. Chug! Chug! Ha <laughs> Fucking breathe! And at about six foot five, 350 pounds, gags could hold you down. He'd force so much water into your mouth and nose and stomach that you couldn't help but throw up or piss yourself. That's what the other bucket was for. To catch what came out of you. I fucking told you. You leave here with what you came in with. Everyone broke by gags. And if they didn't break within two hours, which 95% of people did, everyone except me would join them. They'd do anything and everything to break them. Michael's orders... They want that $10,000. They can get it from my fucking corpse. You know those photos from a while back? Those soldiers overseas mistreating prisoners? Whatever the prison's name was. I understood them. It's a byproduct of environment. You become what you're around. After a few years of doing the haunt, we were all filled with this kind of hate and contempt. The people who came there, the people who actually paid money to show up and get tortured, They were the worst kind of people to us. We were punishing them for being such assholes. We'd assault them, torture them, even bury them. No one ever collected. No one even came close until... (sighs) He was older. Late 40s, 50s, I don't know. I picked him up and he didn't say a word. Just sat there, big on his head in the back of my jeep as we bounced through the woods. It wasn't anything special. I only think about it because, well, because. I dropped him off in the house and went to check the cameras. I watched the dogs do what the dogs do. Nothing special. I watched Blur do his routine. Guy didn't flinch. Again, not a big deal. People got through him okay sometimes. They convinced themselves it's just a game they signed up for. Some vets can handle it. They've been through worse. He moved on to Paul. Still, guy was a statue. No matter what tricks he pulled out, the old guy barely reacted. Like he was asleep or in some kind of coma. But he moved on to Gags. I sat there and watched Gags and Pete go to town on the guy. Stuff that... Stuff that would have crossed the line, if there was a line. But the guy... He didn't flinch. He took it all. He took the worst of it all. Michael was over my shoulder at that point. I could hear his teeth grinding together. He was actually mad. The fuck is wrong with this guy? The fuck is wrong with those two pussies? They can't handle one old man. They were getting dark. Real dark with the guy. Real dark like I'd only seen one other time. Finally, I see the old guy raise an arm real weak. He couldn't have had much left in him. Gags' knuckles were bleeding. There were teeth on the ground. He waved Giggs closer and when Giggs leaned in, the old guy whispered something I couldn't make out. Giggs looked back up at the camera and stepped away from the old man through a side door to the control room. What? What the fuck did he say? He asked me if I know Allison. Who the fuck is Allison? How should I know? What the fuck do we do now? Make him quit. Michael made it sound like it was that easy. I mean... It used to be that easy, but not anymore. How? I don't fucking care. Just make him quit, or you two can fucking pay him the ten grand. Michael stomped out of the room and Giggs just sort of looked at all of us before shrugging and going back to work. Three hours later, the old guy, he wasn't doing good. But he was still there. They did shit to him I hadn't seen anyone else do. Finally, the guy gets one of the dog's attention and they come into the control room. Told us that he'd quit if he could see our core group. Me, Paul, Blur, Giggs, Pete, and Michael. Just wanted us all to go in so he could say he quit to all of us. Didn't occur to me till later that he knew our names. Honestly, Michael was so on edge we weren't thinking about anything. The guy was well past the seven-hour mark and making us all sweat. Michael didn't hesitate. Rounded us all up. 
us going in there hooting and hollering and mocking the guy for finally quitting. Like we'd won something. He looked at us all through eyes that could barely open from the pepper spray. One by one, he looked at us real hard before saying his safe word. We dumped the guy where we found him and called 911 to have him picked up. I think we all knew we'd gone too far. Kept waiting for the police to show up, but they never did. Michael swore the NDA would cover us, but I don't think he even believed it. But the guy never said a peep. We heard about Blur a few days later. Cops found him in his apartment. His tongue had been cut out. His surfer blonde hair shaved. A needle in his arm. The cops said he'd OD'd, lost it, mutilated himself. But before that, he left a note that said, Tell Allison I'm sorry, in his chicken scratch that barely looked human. Michael didn't say anything. Just told one of the dogs there was a new job opening. Paul didn't show up for a gig the next week. Pissing off Michael, who stomped over to his shitbox apartment and found him. Cut off his own cock. Was holding it in his hand. His other hand had a letter. Tell Allison I'm sorry. Michael disappeared after that. It's not like I was left holding the bag. Michael was the haunt. Without him, it was just over. It was all in his name. He even paid us under the table. I knew he was shady, because obviously he was, but still. I went digging through his office. He kept files and all the permission forms and disclaimers he made people sign. I was going through them when I came across one from the year before. It's not like I forgot about her, but I didn't piece it together. She told us her name was Heather, not Allison. One year to the day, her dad came into the same haunt she died at. Their likeness was clear as day when I pulled up the old videos. Fuck incriminating myself. It doesn't matter anymore. I know I'm dead anyway. She died hanging from a pipe, but it was actually caused when she was waterboarded. It's called dry drowning, when the water gets in your lungs and you literally drown on dry land. She'd made it past the seven-hour mark, just like her old man. Michael had his dumper body in a ditch and we circled the wagons, claiming she never showed up for the haunt. There wasn't much the cops could do, and it turned into a rumor. Made the haunt that much more popular, if I'm being honest. No one really believed a girl died here, but she did. Michael told me to delete the videos and watch me do it to make sure they were gone. Didn't ask me to empty the wastebasket, though. Not sure why I kept it. Leverage, maybe? Blackmail? Neither now. Besides, that dumb paranoid fuck kept a release form. They found Gags drowned in his own bathtub. Paul was in his bed with his gas mask on. Some mix of chlorine gas in the tube. His eyes ruptured from the strain. They both had notes. Guess what they said. I don't know what'll happen to me now. Maybe I'll get hit by a car or eaten by dogs or something else that sounds poetic for the fucked up shit we do. But I know he won't forgive me. He looked into my eyes. He wanted to see each of us. So he'd know he got the right people. So they could see the face of the mourning father who would torture the torturers. I don't know where Michael is either. For a while I thought maybe he was involved in what happened until I saw an MP4 email to the haunt website. He couldn't see faces. But there was a naked fat man tied to a table. Parts of him were missing. You could hear him sobbing. There was a stopwatch clock in the corner of the video that read four hours. I knew he was just over halfway to dead if he was lucky. Seven hours like Allison. Like her dad. Maybe more. I couldn't be sure who was really doing it. Lied to myself that it was just a weird elaborate prank from someone as fucked up as Michael. Then a voice came over the recording. Low and flat. Do you know Allison?
As our sixth sleepless decomposition draws to a close, my mind shifts to the future. By the time you next hear from me, the season of the witch will have begun. I know there's a strange audio file appearing in the Season Pass 17 feed for some. I can only imagine what else might appear between now and the dawning of the dusk that marks the birth of the season. And now, in our final tale. We have a tale shared with us by author Daniel Becker. It takes us from atria to ventricles. It's performed by Peter Lewis, who in the world of horror audio drama is well known for being a heart throb. Which is just as well, because despite the fact that he's no surgeon, we need someone who can check if this heart is still beating. Ripping someone's still-beating heart out of their chest and showing it to them before they die. It's a fascinating concept, don't you think? There's certainly no end of examples in various media, movies, TV, video games, literature. And it's not just action and horror that broaches the topic. Comedies like to get a slice of the heart pie as well. I'm not sure what's so funny about tearing through someone's rib cage and pulling out a vital chunk of their anatomy, but it always seems to get a laugh. Perhaps it's the extreme violence juxtaposed with the comedic tone that somehow tickles our funny bones. Who knows? My own fascination with the idea began at a very young age. I was perhaps six or seven, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom came out on home video for the first time. What my parents had assumed was a rip-roaring adventure for the entire family soon revealed more ripping and roaring than I think anyone had expected. Blame the 80s. Hollywood was pulling shit like that all the time back then, slipping extreme violence into supposedly kid-friendly films. My parents had thought I'd be terrified after seeing something like that, but they were wrong. Watching Mola Ram plunge his bare hand into a man's chest and pull out his heart, well, it made my own heart beat like crazy. I wasn't sickened or afraid, just wildly fascinated. But the damage to my parents had been done. Poor, fragile things. And so they'd kept me away from violent movies ever since. Even into my teen years, I had to go to a friend's house to see anything above a G rating. Which I did, and often I became a horror movie aficionado, snatching up everything I could find. Grindhouse, art house, slasher, supernatural, dark, comedies. It didn't matter. And every time a movie included that rare, elusive gem of a scene, there was I on the literal edge of my seat, my body first tensing, then relaxing in an elated swoon. It feels weird to call it orgasmic. Is, is that weird? I guess I'm weird then. I think it was around my junior year of high school that I started seriously thinking about medical school. I went to the library, this was before the internet after all, and I borrowed every book on human anatomy I could find. The cardiovascular system became my religion, the body my temple, the heart my golden idol. I wanted to know everything I could about this marvelous organ. And of course my obsession remained carried along in the back of my mind like stolen pornography furtively glanced at when no one was looking. Heart surgeon. Naturally, I graduated top of my class, of course. All my professors wrote me letters of recommendation saying things like he has a passion for the field unparalleled by any I have seen before, and never have I witnessed such skill in the hands of someone so young. It is as if he and the organ were one. <laughs> I know, I know, really corny stuff, but it got me a position on the cardio team at one of the most prestigious hospitals in the country, so I can forgive their lapse into poetry. And anyway, they were right. 
It really did feel as though I knew hearts from the inside out. Not in any sort of metaphysical way, but just from, you know, years of study and hard work. Those were long, hard years of my life. I barely had time for anything else, let alone a social life. You know, it's a small miracle that I met my wife, let alone married her. She's a good woman, for the most part. She appreciates my skill, if not my fervor for the craft. I've certainly spent more time at the hospital than with her, the poor neglected thing. And all throughout my secret fantasy remained the idea, the concept, the dream. It might seem a little backwards to some people, I'm sure. The whole point of heart surgery is to preserve a patient's life, not end it. And one could argue that I've already achieved this effect through the many successful heart transplants I've performed over the years. But it's... it's not the same. True, they reap the benefits once they awaken, but during they're asleep. They miss seeing me at my best. And that's what it's about, really. A witness, an audience, a, a fan... And so my research began, not with intent to actually do such a thing, of course, just scientific curiosity. I wanted to know if the thing could be done. The first obstacle is the rib cage. Now, bones might be one of the hardest organic substances on Earth, but ribs are comparatively weak. People have actually broken ribs from sneezing too hard. Can you believe it? That said, you have to take into consideration that both the victim and victor are made of the same stuff, and bones knocking against bones is never fun for either party. Try punching through someone's ribcage and you'll probably end up breaking every bone in your hand. I suppose you could flatten your hand and with sufficient force slip it between the ribs. But you still have to get through thick, connective muscles called the intercostals, and you're not doing that with your bare fingers. Alas, there goes the direct approach. I mean, I suppose you could go in with an axe or something. But then we're talking massive physical trauma that would likely push your victim into shock and ultimately unconsciousness followed by death. The whole point is to show them the heart before they die, so axes are right out. What about going in from beneath, I hear you ask? Well, yes. One could pierce the abdominal cavity with relative ease, slicing through the stomach and liver with even a dull blade, piercing the diaphragm to get to the heart beyond. But then what? The veins holding the heart in place are thick. And ripping it out would do damage to the precious organ, endangering the mission. It's supposed to be still beating, after all. So what's left? Well, surgery, of course. And like with all surgery, preparation is key. The good news is, since the goal is to ultimately kill your patient, you needn't worry too much about keeping things sterile. The bad news is, unless you want to run the risk of detection and some serious jail time, co-conspirators are a bad idea. And this means doing the work of an entire surgical team by yourself. Do you know how hard it is to keep someone anesthetized but consciously aware and perform open-heart surgery at the same time? It's really fucking hard. Anyway... Assuming you're able to do all of these things both accurately and discreetly, actually getting the heart out is relatively easy. You just need to disconnect it from the vena cava, the aorta, and the pulmonary arteries. Once that's done, just pick it up, and there you go. Ooh, fun fact, the human heart will continue to beat independently of the body as long as it has oxygen. So... Showing it to your victim while it's still beating is just a matter of keeping it wet with fresh blood. Easy, right? Of course, all of this it was just fantasy, just conjecture. A fascinating medical puzzle to mull over in my downtime. Naturally, I was never going to actually do it. 
until she cheated on me with you. <laughs> it's funny. In a way, I suppose I should thank you. You gave me not only the opportunity, but the motive to make my dream reality. It's just a shame it had to come at my expense. I I had honestly thought we were happy together. She'd certainly given me no direct indication she was unsatisfied. Oh, I'm sure I can accept a small amount of the blame, what with my work pulling me away so often and for so long. But really? An affair? <sighs> oh, but listen to me go on about my marital problems while you are lying there barely clinging to life. Don't worry, I'm almost done. Hold on, I just need to disconnect this last vein. There we go. No, 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 open your eyes. You can't go just yet. We're almost done. I just have to lift it out. Come on. Damn it, wake up. Here it is. See, it's your heart. Your lying, cheating, still beating heart. Right here in my hands. Hey, hey, hello? Hello? Oh. Well, shit. Oh, well. Perhaps I'll have better luck with her. decomposition is complete. What remains is nothing but bone. Bone and something else. Something beautiful, nestled in among the dust that fills this rickety yew-wood coffin. Of course, the coffin is buried deep underground. Nobody will ever have a chance to uncover what shimmers here. But alas, I hear there's a coming season to brace ourselves for. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for the stories are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.